0: today on Ag News Daily.
1: I I look at this pattern and see the activity, and for me, as an ag meteorologist, I'm like, bring it on, because the worse the winter can be, the better the upcoming growing season.
0: Good morning, folks. Welcome to another edition of the Ag News Daily podcast, brought to you today by Sound Ag. It is Wednesday, January 10th, Jennifer, and I think the weather has finally started to calm down a little bit here, but... It sounds like there's more bad weather in the forecast coming up later this week. Oh,
2: no, that is unfortunate, as I am glad the weather is finally settling down, but looks like it might be a long week ahead then.
0: It does. As we look at uh, the U.S. right now, things have settled down a little bit after the Monday-Tuesday storm that swept through many parts of the U.S. We had flooding In some parts of the US, we had a pretty bad tornado that came through uh, the Southwest, some flooding and storms that swept through Florida. About 49, I believe, of their counties were declared an emergency by Governor DeSantis. And as we look out to the days ahead, it seems that there is another polar vortex coming to the US or more specifically the plains in the Midwest yet this week. The Arctic track will start with a first storm in the Texas panhandle and move up through southern Missouri, then through Michigan. And uh, the second one in this series will follow a storm track very close to that. But it sounds like here in the Midwest, we're probably going to see... Another round of snow and blizzard-like conditions on Friday. Texas and the Oklahoma Panhandle will probably start to see that as early as Thursday, and they're expecting for another 6 to 12 inches of snow. We will see blizzard-like conditions as we head into the weekend, Jennifer, and meteorologists right now are suggesting that these conditions are going to be increasingly worse than the conditions we saw earlier this week with the first real storm system of the winter season. So... uh I guess button down the hatches, it's not over yet, and uh, we're going to chat about what to expect this winter with Eric Snodgrass on the podcast today, so I won't steal too much of his thunder.
2: Well, I am not looking forward to that weather this weekend, but I guess it's a good thing we don't have any plans yet. Get another weekend at home for movies and hot cocoa, right? That is true. That
0: would be a good weekend to do it this one.
2: Well, Delaney, yesterday we talked a little bit about land ownership with churches, and today I have some news on land ownership being back as state legislative sessions begin. A staff attorney at the National Agricultural Law Center says lawmakers in at least 16 states are expected to take a closer look at foreign ag land ownership this year. Micah Brown says that Missouri is starting to take the year a completely different approach to the issue with the governor's executive order restricting foreign ownership of land 10 miles from a military facility. He says that there's a lot of legislative proposals to amend the current foreign ag land ownership law. Um, They share further that other states to watch this year include Texas, Georgia, Michigan, Mississippi, Illinois, Indiana, Wisconsin, and Nebraska. Micah Brown says that a patchwork of foreign ag land laws across the country would have different impacts on land transactions and land owners should be following the discussions for possible updates, Delaney.
0: Well, Jennifer, it seems that land is top of mind for a lot of folks as we had the Iowa Land Investment Expo Tuesday in Des Moines, Iowa. We saw at the event a pair of former presidents of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City were on stage and present to share their outlook for the year ahead here for farmland purchases and the value of said purchases. As we look at the year ahead here, obviously, there's some competing factors when we think about lower commodity prices and continued higher interest rates or raised interest rates. But the outlook overall was that farmland value is going to continue to remain stable into 2024. Specifically, the Federal Reserve former presidents said that they're concerned about the national debt and the Fed's increased role in credit markets. But until we see some sort of financial crash as a result, farmland value, they're expecting to remain relatively high and a valuable investment for farmers. They said possibility of one or two rate cuts in 2024 is pretty high to avoid a recession. However, that's not going to maybe be enough to really uh, slow down any sort of farmland purchases. As we look at the price of farmland value or the Uh, Outlook here for 2024. The rise in farmland values over the last three plus years has been pretty astounding, according to Bruce Sherrick, the director of the TIAA Center for Farmland Research at the University of Illinois. He said that specifically, we've seen high farmland returns in Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, and Iowa, all with double-digit gains. Other strong performers have included North Dakota and Indiana, still with double-digit gains, but maybe not quite up to the 19-20% that we've seen in other states. Uh, We're going to be going through another time where commodity cycles are going to be a little bit lower, so it's going to be interesting to see how that impacts the farmland that will be coming available here. But Sherrick also shared that we just came through a period where much of the land in this country is up 50 to 60 percent in value from only about three to three and a half years ago. He said these are gains that have just been unprecedented against history. And when you think about normal farmland trends they typically follow a pretty cyclical pattern as well about every seven to eight years we maybe see it pull back he said he's not sure that same trend is going to happen again so this year is going to be a pretty telling year jennifer for where farmland values are to head
2: Yeah, Delaney, and I'm going to stay on a similar track of farmland, but on the conservation side, as two bills recently were introduced in the U.S. House that would help farmers improve conservation practices on their operations. Congressman Zach Nunn shares that the first bill, the Conservation Innovation Act, would establish a new Office of Innovation within the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service. He says that this is a bottom up approach where farmers get to drive conservation practices that work and submit them forward for the USDA to make standard playbook issues versus what we currently have of a USDA that implements standards. Oftentimes they go decades before they're updated or innovative, but they become the mandate. The new office would work to ensure the utilization of the most effective new technology during the Revision of current conservation standards and development of new standards, none said. The Iowa Republican says that the second measure, the Streamlining Conservation Practice Standards Act, would require the U.S. Ag Secretary to allow for stakeholder input on each conservation practice during the review process. He continues to share, saying giving farmers really a seat at the table while innovation is being reviewed versus just submitting it and hoping that a bureaucrat in D.C. takes them at their word. Nunn finishes by saying that he introduced the bills with the Virginia Democrat, Abigail Spahnberger.
0: Yes, I've heard both of those two folks speak before, and they've got a good head on their shoulders, Jennifer. So good to hear that we've got two good legislators spearheading this. Absolutely. Well, as we look at the avian influenza outbreak, I know we shared on the podcast last week the total amount of impact that this has had, total damage this has had across the bird and poultry industry. And compared to the 2015 outbreak, this one certainly tops the books. Since this round of outbreak began nearly two years ago, the USDA has spent more than $1 billion to compensate farmers for lost flocks and to try to suppress the spread of the disease, according to a spokesperson with APHIS on Monday. They said the largest outlay was $715 million that went to producers, growers, and integrators in indemnity payments or depopulated birds and eggs. An additional $183 million was spent to kill and dispose of flocks for virus, virus elimination. And about $130 million went to associated personnel contractors, state agreements, and field costs to try and help with the euthanization of the large. Uh, herd size there. But the largest recipient of the indemnities at $74.8 million was Jenny O. Turkey Store, a subsidiary of Hormel Foods and a few other uh, companies here, including Sunrise Farms of Iowa, WMG Waldbin of Minnesota, Tyson Foods, and a few other processing facilities as well. This is, of course, an ongoing outbreak. We've not seen an end in sight And the death toll continues to rise here. So I'm sure that number is going to continue to tick up in indemnity payments.
2: And switching over to a story on dairy farms, the executive director of Minnesota Milk says economic stress is not the only reason dairy farmers are exiting the business. Lucas Jostrom shares that both Minnesota and Wisconsin lost 7.4% of their dairy farms in 2023. He says that you actually see a lot of exits in 2014, 18, and a year like 2020 and last year. So those are some of our better dairy years. So it may be a symptom of planning people planning their exits rather than getting a surprise and needing to exit. Jostrom shares that there are concerns about the increase in farmers leaving the dairy business, but many are evaluating the economic viability of their business in the future. He thinks that it's truly hard to paint a picture of why these happen when they happen. If we lost 55 farms in December, that's 55 individual stories he compares it to. Minnesota had 1,825 1, dairy farms as of December 1st, 2023, which is 146 fewer than at the beginning of the year. Comparing that to Wisconsin, they lost 455 dairy farms for 2023, leaving them at a total of 5,661
0: as of January 1st, Delaney. Yes, certainly seeing some additional consolidation there. It's not what we want to see happen, but I know the dairy margin has been pretty tight as of lately. So not surprised by those numbers, Jennifer. Uh, But one number I am surprised by is some four-wheel drive tractors that sold for a small fortune. This comes to us from Machinery Pete, as there was a firework auction at the end of 2023. There was uh, one sale in particular on December 29th by Swenson & Sons in Minot, North Dakota that featured nine incredible four-wheel drive tractors in fairly good condition that went for some record high auction prices. Topping the charts was the 1978 Big Bud with just over 7,800 hours, sold for a whopping $122,500, a record high auction price. There were, like I said, nine total four-wheel drive tractors, uh, pretty much all legacy, except uh, maybe a couple in the early 2000s era here that sold for a pretty penny as well. But all in all, this auction was definitely one to make the books, Jennifer. And uh, Machinery Pete was speculating that there were some year-end tax buyers here that were out in full force at this sale just ahead of the end of the year there. So don't know that that's a trend to show what's coming for 2024, but certainly makes for an interesting story here to wrap up the end of 2023 auction sales.
2: Absolutely. That is interesting and amazing news to hear, but something that isn't so interesting or amazing to hear is the. President of the Renewable Fuels Association is anxious for a rule allowing year-round E15 sales in eight Midwest states to be completed. Jeff Cooper shares that a review by the Office of Management and Budget is the final step. He says that it typically takes a month or so, so we've seen these rules reviewed in as little as six or seven days before, sometimes longer and sometimes even shorter than a month. The EPA rule went into the Office of Management and Budget in mid-December. Cooper calls the process long and arduous and says that it was marked with many delays. He says that we've ha- we have a court challenge involved and we have the oil industry pushing the other way and telling the White House not to do this. So it's been quite a journey, but it feels like we are nearing the finish line. The states that petitioned the EPA for year-round E15 include Iowa, Illinois, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Ohio, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. But that wraps up my news for today, Delaney. Do you have any other stories to share?
0: I just wanted to touch on the WASD report that's coming out on Friday morning as we head into that final kind of expectation of what the 2023 crop produced. We are starting to get analysts' expectations of where they expect to see the USDA share those numbers from the Dow Jones survey of 17 analysts and firms, they're expecting to see on the corn side of things that as of December 1st, corn stocks are going to be increased compared to their December WASDE report, about 1.2 billion bushels higher compared to where we were previously. And if realized, that would be a pretty high, I believe, highest crop that we have seen in quite some time. As far as other analysts' expectations go here, uh, as far as the demand side for corn goes, both ethanol and exports are off to a good start for the year. Ethanol production is up nearly 5% from a year ago, and corn exports up 26% from a year ago at this time. So that should be fairly positive for the WASD report later this week. And when we turn our attention to South America, a lot of analysts are questioning why the USDA has not yet adjusted yields lower for the Safrina corn crop. As we look at CONAB's estimates for Brazil production, they continue to lower it, showing a 14% drop compared to a year ago. And a lot of analysts are pushing and hoping that USDA is finally going to take uh, a big whack at the numbers this week from both Brazil's numbers and world ending stocks. On the soybean side of the balance sheet, uh, exports are not looking so favorable. As we look at ending stocks, USDA has been estimating about 245 million bushels of ending stocks, which will be the tightest supply situation in eight years. With soybean exports down 18% from a year ago, however, and prices falling to new six-month lows, a lot of analysts are wondering if USDA will find more soybean stocks on hand, which wouldn't be very favorable for the markets. As we look at South American production, uh, Dow Jones is expecting USDA to lower again their estimate for world soybean stocks, as well as their expectations for Brazil and soybean Brazil and Argentina soybean production. Traders note once again that Conab's estimates coming out from their uh, soybean production are still continuously lower than where the USDA puts us. So that's a little bit of a mixed bag coming up for this week's report. But of course, the USDA is also known to throw some surprises into the mix, so uh, time will tell what we see on Friday when that report is released at 11 a.m. Central Time. But heading into that report, Jennifer, we're continuing to see deflated prices here this morning in the overnights. March corn down two cents at 457. March soybeans down six and a half cents at 1242. Taking a look at wheat today, the March contract down a quarter of a cent heading into the opening session at 609 and three quarters. March hard red winter wheat down three and three quarters cents at 623 and a quarter, and March spring wheat down a quarter of a cent at 705 and a quarter. Livestock today will open up at a 170.75 in February live cattle. March feeder cattle will open at 224.87 and a half on the board and February lean hawks will open at 71.87 and a half. Jennifer, as I mentioned for today's conversation, we're going to kick it over to a conversation with Eric Snodgrass to talk about all things weather. So let's turn it over. Do you want to optimize the amount of plant nutrition provided by the microbes in your soil? Source it. Want to replace 25 pounds of nitrogen and phosphorus per acre? Source it. Looking for a more cost-effective way to unlock your crops potential and increase ROI? Source it. Easy to handle, apply, and store. To make your fertilizer plan more efficient, source it. Learn more at sound.ag. Well, we're chatting weather today as we've seen this huge storm system roll through much of the United States this week with Eric Snodgrass, Science Fellow for Nutrient Ag Solutions. Eric, thanks for joining today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: So, Eric, I want to start by the current system that we've got rolling through the US right now. I read something the other day that said 49 out of the 50 US states have some sort of weather system going through, not necessarily snow, but was that a coincidence or was there something that caused that?
1: Well, it's it's a really active pattern right now. So what we finally did, which didn't happen at all in December, was we finally got rid of the deep troughs of low pressure over Alaska and Greenland. So just think of it this way, if it's cold in those two areas flanking North America, then the middle part of the country is gonna have a hard time getting good cold air, which means good chances for winter storms like the ones we have now. Well, back at the very beginning of January, we saw those two things, the cold air that was in Alaska And in Greenland, go away. So if you put a ridge of high pressure in there, guess what? Out in the middle between them, squeezed from the north toward the south, is uh, cold air. And it's finally coming into place. Therefore, the storm track is starting to pick up. And we're getting better chances at, at sink precip. And you're right. Uh, Even this morning, when you look at the uh, National Weather Service All Hazards weather map, which kind of just highlights where there's advisories and watches and warnings and things like that. uh, It is only North Dakota that has been left out of the mix. And honestly, the places that are going to be kind of left out of this whole pattern are sections of the Canadian prairie, the northern plains, and then pockets of the southwest. Other than that, most of the rest of the country is going to be dealing with one of three big winter storms. The first one today going right through your state and mine it'll head on off to Ontario. It'll be followed this weekend by another system. And then next Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, by another one that will even go farther to the south.
0: So as we look at the current snow system that you mentioned is moving through our neck of the woods right now, Mm -hmm. is this a sign of what's to come for the rest of the U.S. winter season?
1: Well, it certainly fits in well with this current El Nino. Kind of the thinking all along was that December was going to be mild and and possibly keep some of the drought areas in drought just because there wasn't a whole lot of activity until we got around Christmas. Remember, there was a big Christmas uh, system that hit the plains pretty hard, but there was always this notion that this was going to be what we call a back half-loaded winter, meaning that we're going to have to wait till we get past the new year to start to actually see some cold air and the risk of of, of more systems rolling through. Now, we do not expect this just to stay on indefinitely. In fact, once we get past the next, about eight, uh, let's call it eight to 10 days, we might revert back to a more El Nino look in the pattern. And what that means is, the gesture of the Pacific elongates, tends to target California across the Southern U.S., and we end up getting back into a flow pattern here in the Midwest United States where the winds are coming at the jet stream level out of the Northwest. And that's not the right direction to give us big system after big system after big system. So what's giving us all the crazy weather right now is that the flow is coming out of the Southwest. And that's what you want if you want to, to see a lot of winter weather. But that does not mean that it won't turn back on at some point in January, late January, or maybe into February and March. And the whole point of all of this, to be honest, Delaney, that I care most about is the drought correction that this is going to be providing because you know where i am over here in champaign illinois it's raining right now and i love it i absolutely love it even though most people hate it they'd either rather have it be dry or snowy uh the rain that means that soil is not frozen and this is soaking in and it's helping correct these longer term drought issues we've got in the mississippi basin so i i look at this pattern and see the activity and for me as an ag meteorologist, I'm like, bring it on because the worse the winter can be, the better the upcoming growing season. So that's what I'm watching.
0: Yeah, that is something that took me a little while to figure out is it's actually great to get this snowfall when the ground is not completely frozen because that means subsoil moisture is being rebuilt. And that's like you said, good for our growing season longer term. Although it it stinks in the moment, having these big storms <laughs> flow through.
1: Yeah, I don't want to have livestock right now. I mean, this is just muck and it's a mess and it is um, very uncomfortable for all of livestock, but it will turn cold. Uh, just, just to give you an example, today, the high temperatures in Montana are going to be in the low 40s. By Friday, the high temperatures are going to not get above minus 10. So we're mm-hmm. looking at just in high temperatures alone, a 50 degree swing. And that's going to, of course, penetrate all the way through the Midwestern United States into early next week. So there is cold coming. There's going to be that locks this moisture into the soil in the near term, but I'm still anticipating a pretty active freeze-thaw cycle for much of the Midwest, getting all the way through the remainder of winter.
0: Yeah, so as we look out then longer term, obviously we've been talking a little bit here about subsoil moisture and just the overall drought condition, and we did start to see, or we've started to see the drought monitor lighten up a little bit as far as areas in extreme drought. How much rainfall or snowfall do we need this winter season to really things See, see the situation completely turn around.
1: Well, it's it's gonna be different depending on which state, as you can imagine, I'd say, but I'm just gonna compare our two states. So you being in Iowa me being in Illinois, I made a map the other day that looked at the um, last four years, so from January, 2020, up until December 31st, 2023. And there are parts of Iowa right now that are over 40 inches in deficit over a four year span. So to correct that longer term drought stretch in Iowa is gonna take multiple seasons of wet conditions. Now in Illinois and other surrounding states, it's not nearly as bad. Iowa is the epicenter of that longer term deficit, especially Western Iowa. But we can do a lot to work against it to provide enough water for just the next year in the next four to six months. In other words, we can do enough of a correction with wet conditions between now and April, that we could be in pretty good shape. So you say, well, what does the rest rest of winter look like? I actually don't see it slowing down and getting back over to really, really dry for months at a time. And there are some indications that depending on the speed at which the El Nino slows down, we can actually see some pretty tight spring planting windows, if it continues on the pace that it currently is going, which is a rather slow but inevitable demise as we head into the growing season of 2024.
0: Well, Eric, I want to turn our attention to South American weather, because that's obviously been a continued focal point for the markets and others. You had a recent article that said these heavy rains that have started to come through Brazil and Argentina actually are going to do more damage than good. Elaborate for us on that perspective.
1: Right. So if you just think back, what happened in, in Brazil was a very rapid early planting that then was stopped because of heat and drought at some point in November through December. So we had a lot of late planted crop and a bunch of early planted. So you know, See what I'm saying? Like It was really drawn out and there was replanted crop. Then we went into this pretty serious drought through the rest of October, November, and December, where in some places it was the driest since 1942. Okay. So that crop is already vulnerable. So where is the crop stage? And I remember they grow a shorter... Uh, you know, bean than we do. So it doesn't take as long to reach maturity. So it would be the same right now if we got some heavy rains in that area, as, as if we were getting heavy rains in September, and maybe even like early October. Now that's a bit of a stretch. But if we get really, really wet conditions, Showing up any time between now and the beginning of February, that's like the equivalent of having heavy rain on your beans that you haven't harvested in October. So what I'm concerned about is already stressed beans getting too much water too late, not enough to help them with overall, you know, uh, yield and and potential, but instead continuing to disrupt the crop calendar by not allowing us to rapidly harvest those first crop of soybeans and plant Sabrina corn. So that's the north and the center west. Down south. In southern Brazil, this is kind of our better looking area overall, better rains. And then Argentina is recovering from a two-year drought right now. But unfortunately, it did so with some places like around Cordoba uh, this past weekend. They saw 10 inches of rainfall. So absolutely torrential rains uh, in parts of the south. So bigger picture is simply this. I actually think that rain at this stage is going to be more of a hindrance, especially if it's too heavy across northern Brazil as they start to harvest.
0: Eric, this crop aside, when we look out to that next crop that they'll inevitably be planting, does Mm -hmm. that help them with the drought conditions that they've been seeing? Does that make the next crop in the cycle a little bit better for them? Or does that still have an impact on that crop as well?
1: It will. I mean, it could be helpful. In other words, if it does come in and it rains, well, certainly we'd look at that as a positive signal for the safrina crop that's going to get planted. The thing about it, though, is we're curious as to how many acres are going to get planted in safrina corn versus safrina cotton uh, overall. And then remember, when there is a slowly fading El Nino, we start to run the risk of having a problem in uh, uh april of having the monsoon slow down too soon so could the saprina crop finish under dry conditions that's possible so what i would tell you is unlike the last few years i feel like there's a lot of vulnerability in the brazilian crop whereas the last two years it was all about argentina having all of the problems
0: eric as we look here longer term then for the us growing season i know it's still a couple months away so it may not be on too many folks minds yet but Moisture levels is a, still a big question mark right now. But as far as the weather models and what they're telling you, what does this summer's growing season look like? Are we going to be hot and dry or maybe a little cooler and wet?
1: Okay, so here's the big idea. If we think about the competition between our two major modeling suites, one of the forecast models wants to really quickly deteriorate El Nino and rapidly develop La Nina by summer. That one's going to give us our biggest drought risk. On the flip side of that, we have the European model, which is much slower. And as a result, it's trying to bring in wet conditions only through spring, but for most of the growing areas in the central part of the United States, keep the wetter conditions around later and longer into the summer. What I'm worried about is which model is going to be right and where's the ridge going to set up this particular year. So we have quite a bit ahead of us here to watch, and I'm just telling you, it's going to be the pace of the decline of El Nino that's going to set the tone for what this upcoming summer is. Here in January, I'm not yet overly worried about the 2024 growing season, but there's still risk on the table. There always is. So we'll keep an eye on all of it.
0: Fantastic, Eric. Well, thanks again for sharing your weather insights. We always appreciate having you on the podcast. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Well, Jennifer, a big thank you again there to Eric. I always appreciate him coming on and making weather interesting to talk about.
2: Absolutely. I love hearing about that because, you know, it's different than watching the news at 5 p.m. in the living room, right?
0: That's true. He makes it exciting and engaging. But Jennifer, today we've wrapped it up. So should we let people go?
2: Let's let them go.